jury was allowed to see, but what they were not. We even talk about this body camera footage. This is a, about an 18 minute interaction with George Floyd. That day, it's 90 seconds in the end that the jury is allowed to see in trial. In this episode, I sit down with Emmy Award winning reporter Liz Collin, producer of the new narrative busting documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis. I went to the Minneapolis police website where they've always had their manual online for years and there are two pages that are mysteriously missing. So I knew that something more was, was at work here. She breaks down what really happened the day George Floyd died, what the media left out, and what evidence was withheld at the trial. To manipulate a story like this, to hide things from the public, it's really a testament to, to poor leadership. Nobody was willing to just stand up and speak the truth. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Liz Collin, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. You've made an astonishing film. You know, you've liberally used this body cam footage from the police officers involved in the arrest of George Floyd, including Derek Chauvin, of course. Um, stuff that was withheld for a long time. But now most of what I think is in your film is public domain. Yet you put it together telling a very different story than I think the world is aware of. Before I jump in, <laughs> tell me about a little bit about your background. How did you get so deeply into this? Yeah, I like to say this isn't a story I ever set out to tell. I never wanted to or wished I had to, uh, to be quite honest. But I was a member of the mainstream media for nearly 20 years. Uh, worked about 14 years uh, of that at, at a CBS station in Minneapolis, where I was an anchor and reporter. Um, at the time this all unfolded on uh, May 25th, 2020, uh, I was married uh, and am married uh, to the former union president of the Minneapolis Police Department. But myself, my career, uh, our family got caught up in, in all of this. Uh, but more than anything, I was so troubled uh, as a journalist seeing this unfold because the media really was uh, privy to all of this information, public information, as you point out. And instead of actually trying to get at the facts of, of the case, push back against some of these narratives that we knew simply were not true. Uh, instead, there was this uh, fear that sort of permeated the air uh, in Minneapolis and I think across the country as well, that you kind of had to go this one way and, and not even bother um, uh, to care about, about facts and about what we saw happening with, uh, with our justice system. And so that's just a bit of the, the background of how I, how I got here a few, few years later. You knew basically the day or the day after that these traumatic, I'll use the word, events transpired, um, that something was really off. It was really the very next day um, after this happened um, at 38th and Chicago in, in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was, was arrested. Um, for the very first time, you have uh, the mayor, the chief of police, holding multiple press conferences. Uh, also, the chief I knew called in the FBI that, that very night, just hours um, after this unfolded. Clearly, I had a very unique perspective uh, with, with my husband's job. But as a reporter, um, you have them holding press conferences and saying things like this, whatever's happening there at 38th and Chicago with George Floyd, this isn't a part of uh, police training. We've never seen this maneuver before. What I observed uh, was not training that I ever participated in, uh, none that I observed uh, uh, other officers uh, participating in. And just as a 
reporter, I went to the Minneapolis uh, police website where they've always had their manual online for years, and there are two pages that are mysteriously missing from the manual at that time. And so I knew that, that something more was, was at work here. Uh, they also said that George Floyd had never been arrested before. Minneapolis police never had anything to, to do with him. And that was also not true. A year earlier, he was the subject of an undercover drug investigation in 2019. And if you play the body camera footage next to the body camera footage in, in 2020, they're eerily similar as, as to what played out. Uh, but more than anything, it was the body camera footage from that incident in 2020 that they hid from the public, and that has never happened uh, before in any type of critical incident. Uh, this is the point of body camera, body cameras on Minneapolis police officers that, that taxpayers paid for years ago, uh, you know, to increase transparency. So again, all of this uh, was hidden and manipulated, and I knew that very early, very early on. Well, and, and with respect to this body cam footage being withheld, you knew that because your husband was head of the police union, and that's, I guess, some of the first people that get that footage, right? right? Yeah. And, and he knew something w was obviously off here, too, that the union wasn't allowed to, to view this. Uh, it was ultimately withheld for about two and a half months um, altogether. And I still think, to this day, most people have never seen that entire encounter with George Floyd, which is why we wanted to start the film with, with just that. Well... Why do you think the footage was withheld so long? I think there's so much more to that encounter that people in, in power didn't want people to, to know. You have, you have George Floyd, who's very resistant uh, from the very beginning. George Floyd is talking about how he can't breathe long before, before Derek Chauvin even arrives on scene. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. You have a black officer who arrests George Floyd uh, that day. Alex King is is black. Uh, it didn't fit the the narrative, and and he'll be the first to to tell you that in in the film as well. Um, you have also uh, George Floyd, who's pulled out of a cramped vehicle at the time, but yet he says he's claustrophobic and can't be put into the back uh, of a squad car. You have Thomas Lane, who calls for an ambulance 36 seconds after George Floyd is placed on, on the ground. And I should say that George Floyd himself asks to be placed on the ground because he does not want to get in the back of that squad. George Floyd is also saying again and again that he didn't take anything, he's not on anything. And I should say also, this MRT, they make reference to it in the body camera footage as well. Let's take him out and just... What? what? MRE. Um, so there's a reason uh, that they tried to keep it hidden. So I want to talk about that briefly. That's maximal restraint technique, right? MRT is standard usage. It's in all the manuals. People are trained in it. You have multiple police officers talking about that. And then you have footage of the chief of police on the stand saying that that method, which apparently Derek Chauvin used in a tech, literally textbook way, is not part of what police officers in Minneapolis do. How did, when you saw that, how did you react to that? You know, there was so much of this that uh, I kept saying, they're lying. They are lying. I, I put a book out first about all this called uh, They're Lying, The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd. And this, and this film is based on that. But I really couldn't believe uh, all along, you know, this dragged out not just for months, but for years, uh, how people were so uh, quickly to lie and then to go along with it. And nobody seemed to want to, to call them out. So you have the, the chief of police under oath uh, say that MRT is not a part of police training. I must ask you, is this a trained Minneapolis Police Department defensive tactics technique? It is not. You 
have the head of training, uh, then Inspector Katie Blackwell, who says the same thing. Is this a trained technique that's uh, by the Minneapolis Police Department when you were uh, overseeing the training unit? It is not. Not, not just, just recently. This is training that dates back decades. We found a, a police training manual from 1993 that, that specifically talks about uh, MRT. And, and I really think that the, the trial transpired 10 months after, after the death of George Floyd, uh, but that really sent a, a message about that, the damage that, that lies can do. Something that's also very stark that not a lot of people know about, but I, I think an increasing number have more recently, is that there were multiple autopsy reports. Yeah, and I think that's why we wanted to lay this out in, in the film the way we did, um, just to give a sense of the timeline. You actually have George Floyd's autopsy finished uh, within 12 hours of his death. George Floyd was a healthy young man. So keep in mind, this is long before any buildings burn in, in Minneapolis or, or across the country, uh, for that matter. Um, but then all of a sudden, you have the FBI involved in interviews with uh, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, Dr. Andrew Baker. You also have prosecutors involved uh, interviewing him multiple times as, as a week sort of goes by. And, and again, this is all part of public documentation as this narrative changes a bit from, from the original findings 12 hours uh, after his death. And we wanted to go go into to that a bit. And really, the, the point of the film here, too, isn't... Uh, isn't so much that, you know, this is what you need to think about this. It's more, here's all the information that was kept from you. Question why it was kept from you, and then you can go ahead and, and decide for yourself. You have no, no strangulation marks. Uh, there was no asphyxiation, uh, no bruising to the neck. You have three times the lethal limit of, of fentanyl in George Floyd's system. Uh, you have George Floyd, who has a, a tumor that there are still questions as to why more testing wasn't done uh, on that tumor. He has 75% blockage in one artery uh, going to his heart. He recently recovered from, from COVID. We had many medical professionals uh, for the book and, and film uh, review his medical records, and they all describe him really as kind of a, a ticking time bomb uh, in, in a way. There's so much going on. However, you have the autopsy, uh, the official autopsy from Dr. Andrew Baker, released on the same day that George Floyd's family uh, releases what they call an independent autopsy, and that's what the the mainstream media went with. They called it an independent autopsy. But these were these were two medical examiners uh, bought and paid for essentially by George Floyd's family, um, and they were released on the exact same day. So one also should perhaps wonder why that that was. Did they have direct access to George Floyd's body? And no, so and they they, right. they did not. It was not an actual you know official autopsy. The only autopsy uh, with um, the actual body of George Floyd was conducted by Dr. Andrew Baker. You also have uh, Dr. Andrew Baker, who admits, um, well, basically, I should say there's some grand, uh, some grand jury testimony that points to this, that uh, he's asked if he faced any pressure to change his autopsy or come to a certain conclusion when it came to his autopsy. And he asks to first consult with his lawyer before he can answer that question under oath as part of uh, that grand jury proceeding, and then comes back two hours later uh, to answer the, the question. So there, there's a lot of things um, that, that happened that the, the public wasn't aware of. And this is a quote from testimony. It just happens that this is one of the things I pulled that I think uh, you put up on the screen. And Dr. Baker, you know, and I quote, you know, he said to me, Amy, 
What happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided upon? And then he said, this is the kind of case that ends careers. Yeah, so, so he's ultimately admitting very early on um, how much pressure his office is, is facing. And I, and I also don't think that, I think that that pressure spread all over uh, as, as part of this uh, justice system. Also within the, the police department, uh, the, the public, the media, I think everybody uh, was, was able to, to feel that it was certainly palpable um, at that time. But, but yeah, you're right, that comes from an actual deposition uh, that recently came to light uh, that talks more about the, the pressure that they were facing. And in fact, we know now, because of those depositions, that the two prosecutors uh, who were basically uh, the head of the use of force department, if you will, um, within the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, did not want to charge the three other officers at all. Uh, they said morally and ethically they didn't feel comfortable going forward with charges. And this is when you have the Attorney General of Minnesota uh, sort of swoop in and takes over the case, and he ultimately charges the three other officers with aiding and abetting murder, all within that week. It was so chaotic, a lot of people are, aren't aware of what was you know, kind of going on each and every day, and that's kind of why we wanted to lay it out the way we did. Let's talk a little bit about current events. Just a few days ago, the Supreme Court uh, has refused Derek Chauvin's appeal. Yeah, the, the judge, uh, Peter Cahill, in the case uh, did not allow uh, the MRT training slide to be used in, in trial. And so you have the appeal that was really based on this uh, change of venue that was not granted. So keep in mind, Derek Chauvin is being tried in, in, within Hennepin County 10 months after you know, the most uh, damaging riots in, in Minneapolis history. Um, and you have uh, this jury that's not sequestered, that's paraded in and out of this courthouse every day, uh, that has barbed wire all around it. National Guardsmen are, are there on scene uh, each and every day. I think you know, we, we talk about sort of the message that sends through uh, Derek Chauvin's current uh, attorney, but the U.S. Supreme Court was only taking a look at that appeal based on, uh, based on that change of venue situation. So there are still some more legal maneuvers here that I think they'll look at. They did consider the U.S. Supreme Court taking this case as a, as a long shot, but, you know, obviously figured it was, it was worth it. So it sounds like his attorneys, uh, they were not too surprised uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to take the case. It would seem that all of this evidence that was not considered in the trial should be considered at some point by someone. Yeah, and that's what I say about um, this case, too. It wasn't so much what the jury was allowed to see, but what they were not. We even talk about this body camera footage. This is a, about an 18-minute interaction with George Floyd. Uh, that day, it's 90 seconds in the end that uh, the jury is allowed to see in trial, and, that, and that's it. Um, and obviously, you know, as we've talked about, it being withheld from, from the public as well. Uh, you have George Floyd's criminal history, which is very lengthy and dates back decades. That's kept from, uh, that's kept away from the, the jury. Also, you have the arrest in 2019 when we talked about how similar uh, his behavior was uh, to what happened in, in 2020. Uh, for the most part, the jury isn't allowed to, to see much of that either. Hmm. Well, the other thing that happened is that Derek Chauvin was actually stabbed in jail. And I don't know, do you have any information on that? Yeah, this was so troubling on, on so many levels. It was eight days after we released um, the, the film, and we, we sort of did so with little expectations. Um, uh, 
But amazingly, you know, millions of people had, had seen it already at that time. And we got this terrible news about about Derek, who's in a medium uh, security facility in Arizona, where he's been without any problems for, for 15 months now. We got word that he was in, in stable condition. But the, per the person that was giving word uh, to the media and such was the actual man who put him behind bars in the first place, and that was the Attorney General of Minnesota. So Keith Ellison is the very first person to make a statement at all about his health condition. Uh, his own family wasn't aware of, of what happened uh, to him, and, and they were in fact told several days later. So we just know that he's uh, in, in stable condition. Um, there's very little that that uh, federal authorities at this point have, have said uh, about it, but they have said that he will uh, survive, thankfully, but, but there are still so many so many questions uh, surrounding that, for sure. What I keep thinking back to the chief of police, and I guess I, I forget if said she's the head of training or um, testifying that this standard technique that people are trained on every year is not a part of their approach to policing. Well, I think that's why we are where we are in, in Minneapolis now. You have a department that was nearly 900 officers at the beginning of May of 2020, which has dwindled to barely 500 um, at, at this point three years later. Um, but you had so many lies, and I don't, I think perhaps these leaders were so focused, um, you know, just perhaps on, on Derek Chauvin and these other officers, they thought perhaps they could feed them to the wolves in a way, not really realizing the ripple effects that those decisions would have. And that's why we wanted to give a voice to these other officers in, in the film, too, because they'd never shared their, their stories before. Minneapolis really lost the best of the best when it comes to their, their police department. Uh, people who'd served, you know, 20, 30 years, this isn't how they obviously wanted to, to end their careers. But they would go to work each and every day, you know, not even worried about losing their job, but, but their freedom. Uh, in, in the wake of all of this, so I think that's hard for a lot of us to imagine to have to face such a uh, such a thing each and every day, just just going to, to work. And they loved they loved this job. You know, they believed in, in serving and protecting. And I think it's pretty heartbreaking to to hear from them. Well, and just the the whole one of the big stories in their film is, of course, the loss of the first precinct, or the giving up, or the giving to the mob yeah. of the third precinct. Yeah, and this, uh, I think a lot of people weren't aware, was sort of a planned surrender of the 3rd Precinct. This is after the rioting had gone on for a couple days in Minneapolis. And as crazy as it sounds now, <laughs> they thought that giving this building to the mob would stop the rioting. Uh, so none of the cops who got word of this plan thought it was a good one. Uh, of course, they had to, had to follow their, their chain of command in this uh, instance. But um, they, they talk about how, you know, earlier in the day, they are allowed to collect their personal belongings out of the third precinct. A city bus pulls up, um, and they can pull out all of their personal belongings, evidence uh, involved in cases and such, if you can even imagine this scene. And then that bus is supposed to come back and get them later in the evening when they give the go-ahead to give up the, the building. Um, and this is in the film when they're basically running for their lives. There's no real exit strategy. Um, they have to, to meet this bus about a half mile away as they're running through the, the street as they're being struck with rocks and bottles, and uh, they discuss that at great length. And then the bus is actually late to pick them up as they're waiting there, um, you know, to, to get a ride to their next location. It's really just absolutely horrific that this, you know, even happened in uh, uh, our country. And, and this really, uh, again, was, was the reason that many uh, officers uh, left in the wake of all of this. So you've been in the media, I think you said 20 years. Um, you've won a number of Emmys 
for some of your investigative work in the past. How does this investigation uh, compare with others you've done, I guess? Yeah, I think this is another reason that um, you know we wanted to go forward with this is we're all still paying the consequences of these lies to this day. Um, again, not only in, in Minneapolis, I mean, you kind of pick the city and that, that seems to be the, the case. And I really am a believer that if the truth was told about this uh, very early on, it just didn't have to. To happen, perhaps there would have been um, some fallout legally, and you know, involving other other things, and those would have been conversations. But but instead, to manipulate a, a story like this, to hide things from the public, um, you know, it's really a testament to, to poor leadership, uh, I think, as well, that nobody was willing to just um, stand up and 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 speak the truth. Um, so, and I so I've just never seen corruption on this type of level before in in my career. Um, I think for a long time I thought, okay, somebody else is going to do something about this. But I knew that I also had a very unique uh, per perspective um, and I needed to, to do something. Have you seen Who Killed Michael Brown? I actually have not. Mm -hmm. well, it is on the list, though, I've, I've, I've heard. Well, yes. it, it it's, reminds me yeah, similar. <laughs> of this ex other excellent film, which I would recommend yeah. uh, people people watch. The, 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 the theme is there's a prescribed narrative. Yeah, and I also think um, with my backstory, I never considered myself a political person at, at all. I really lived to be a journalist, really from the time I was like a five or six years old. It's what I it's what I wanted to do. Um, but this really became a, a fight against evil that I saw b before my eyes. It seemed, uh, you know, something I'd never seen on this on this scale before. So that was something um, that that truly bothered me, and um, and I and I think that was you know all, all the more in, important. And also, I think to to speak to is this what we want our justice system to to look like? Alex King speaks to that again. He's the officer in prison for three and a half years after being on the job for three days. Uh, the black officer who arrested George Floyd, but but he speaks to that. You know, don't fall for this race bait that the the media uh, peddles. And you know, be be a critical thinker. We the street justice doesn't get us um, anywhere. And do we really want our justice system to be to be ruled by the mob? And I think it's something that every citizen of this country really needs to to think about. You know, I talk about this in the book more. My personal story with what the media was doing because I saw it uh, obviously where I was working, but. Um, we had mandates put in place very early on after this incident with George Floyd. Uh, half the people we interviewed for the news had to be non-white or from a protected class. And so I was the only one saying, so we're now implementing racism? But I really couldn't wrap my head around how we felt, how we were going to you know, shape things and, and do things differently. Um, and, you know, there was certain terms we couldn't use. We couldn't use the term rioting. You know, you had many reporters obviously standing in front of burning buildings behind them talking about how moving these peaceful protests uh, were in, in the wake of all this. But just changing language and, and kind of pushing this poison, in my opinion, uh, on the public to, to think a certain way um, really became, I, I think, quite, quite dangerous. You're, when you reported, you were, there was a qualifier added. <laughs> Right to to 
whenever you were doing reporting. Yeah, so I, um, you know, as I said, was was married to, to Bob for several years before all of this with, with no issue, but the mob certainly came after me and our, our family also. But but I saw that the station where I work caved to the mob too. All of a sudden there was a disclaimer in every story about uh, the Minneapolis police that I'm married to the union president. The anchors would say that on the air when every time they would talk about Minneapolis police, but that had never been done b before. I didn't think I needed to start a newscast each and every night with who I was married to. I mean, what woman in this country <laughs> would be, you know, be, be told to do so? And I was never allowed to anchor the news again. I mean, I was demoted as soon as the incident happened with George Floyd. I finished out my contract, but basically in a closet uh, for the last couple of years. But I, I could certainly see, um, you know, how the, how the mob ruled the day in, in the media as well. Yeah, I mean, again, it's sort of astonishing given that you were I don't know if you were at the top of your game, but you were somewhere around the top of your game, right? Yeah, I was. A, yeah. You know, I'm a Minnesota native. It's the station I grew up watching. I was the highest-rated uh, anchor in the Twin Cities on the on the weekends. I really did. It was kind of the dream job that I landed, and 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 loved it. I certainly saw though the media changing in in my time uh, in it, but again, never on this scale. Just seeing how much information uh, we decided to hide. Officer King, you have his mother saying. I think, if I recall correctly, I'm really worried, you know, that he'll come out a changed person. I want him to remain himself or something something in that vein. My greatest fear is that it's going to change who he is. That I just don't know who he's going to be when he comes out. Yeah, and that was really the point of the film. We really wanted to give a voice to the people who had their... Um, you know, voices silenced uh, in all of this. And, and that's what's so sad. You have in Alex King's story, for example, uh, this is a kid who grew up in North Minneapolis. He dreamed of being a police officer. Uh, his mom, a longtime uh, Minneapolis educator, she worked in several public schools in Minneapolis. This was the kid you wanted to, to be a cop uh, in Minneapolis. And, and here he is again three days later be, being thrown in prison. And he, I, I, I can't say it seems to me when I even talk to him, it's almost I'm more bitter than this guy is. <laughs> but he really, you know, says that this isn't going to be the end of him, and he has a very good um, outlook and, and attitude. It tugs at your heartstrings even more because you're just aware of, you know, these are a lot of really good people who got caught up in this. And, uh, you know, and if the truth was told, it just clearly did not have to, to be this way. What, what was the most shocking thing you discovered in, this, in your investigation? Gosh, that, that's hard because, uh, as I said, I kind of just kept shouting this, their lying line uh, over and over again. I lost uh, my faith in humanity a bit through all of this, I'll be honest. I guess I'm a bit naive and think that, that people really uh, do want to be good people and, and do what's right. Um, so to me, that was shocking. And still to this day, the fact that I'm not sure how many of these people can sleep at night and feel good about what they allowed uh, to happen. Minneapolis is really a shell of itself. Um, it was a lovely city before, um, but you have skyrocketing crime, crimes that never happened before in this Midwestern uh, city. Um, you know, record homicides, carjackings weren't even reported uh, in Minneapolis before all of this, and there are hundreds that transpire each and every year. Just how many victims were created along the way uh, through all of this. I, I will say it's been uh, heartening again that people believe in the truth and that this film has, has done as well as it had. Another reason we wanted to offer it for free, so you have no excuses uh, to, to not watch it. The truth should be, should be free. 
So tell me a little bit more about the making of the film. You said you're offering it for free. Generally, it's difficult. I can tell you from experience to make films for free. So, so how, how is it made? Yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Like how hard could it be to make a free <laughs> free film? But what we actually we did is um, through through the book and just some different book talks, we started crowdfunding just to say, you know, we're going to go ahead and, and put this documentary together. It's uh, pretty low budget as far we didn't want it to come off that way. But many of us, it was just a passion project, and we were obviously you know volunteering our times our time and such to put this together. But I I sort of worked as the you know reporter you see. Uh, on film, but also uh, the producer of, of the film, um, lay, laying that out. And I had a, a wonderful director, Dr. J.C. Shea is, is his name. He's a former police officer, uh, so he really uh, felt felt strongly about this. And he's a, an educator uh, also. Um, and then we have a, a very young young guy, uh, Josh Feeland is his name, who took on the, the shooting of, of all of the interviews. He did the editing and the soundtrack. So it was really just the three of us that, that put this together. And we were able to, to raise these funds in a pretty short amount of time, actually just a, just a couple weeks. Um, and we knew once we sort of locked in the price, all right, we'll cover our expenses and we'll, and we'll push this out in, in November for free. Well, an, an astonishing feat, I would say, for that for that level of effort. I can tell you just from a little bit of experience. Oh, thank you. And I, you know, I was close to a lot of these these people too, and obviously had had access. And putting the book out first sort of helped people have the courage uh, to come forward. I think sometimes that can be scary to obviously you know be in front of bright lights and uh, on a on a camera and and such. But um, I think you know putting putting the book out sort of gave them a, a bit more courage to say, yeah, that they would, you know, sign up to, to, to do the documentary with us. How is it that you were able to get in touch with Derek Chauvin? Because I know that he was very uh, uninterested in communicating with media for a long time. Well, I think the media, we really saw how they portrayed him early on just as this monster. I mean, he was really built up, uh, you know, to, to be something that is so unlike really who he is. He's a very small timid guy, I would say. He's a little shy, quirky. Um, I obviously didn't know him b before before this, um, but he's basically kind of my size, five, five six. And um, he, you know, he was sort of built up into this character. And um, I just approached him as a, somebody who was willing to, you know, listen to, to his side, um, you know, give give him a, a voice. But this is someone who, you know, he'd served the, the city of Minneapolis for 19 years. He had 18 complaints in his past, which so much was made of that, which is actually a very low record of of complaints. But but I should say that they resulted in, you know, one was, I think, a, a written reprimand for report writing. They were so minor, um, you know, this, and I'm not here to say there aren't bad cops or, you know, just as there are, are bad doctors and whatever. This is not even a, um, but it's amazing to me what what the media can do, their, their power to turn someone in. Uh, to to that, so it was actually he was thankful. I think that somebody was was willing to to put the the truth out there, and that was the, the same with the other officers as well. Um, just someone who didn't see them right away um, as the the bad guy, because there was so much more uh, to this story. I mean, obviously, you've been watching, you know, from the inside for most of it, what's been happening with the media. But what did you see and? I guess, you know, how did you see that manifest? Um, as social media sort of became a, a part of the scene with, with the media, we're obviously competing all of a sudden for, for ad dollars. 
there. Um, and, and we s sort of became beholden to big pharma, I felt like. That was uh, several years ago. You know, you could see where the ad revenue was was coming into into um, mainstream media. And that's why I, I did feel comfortable going into independent media, um, because it, it just felt like in the end we, we were just fine pushing propaganda, uh, not pushing back at all. You know, again, they're shaping our, our words and telling us who we can interview, what they need to look like. You, you, is this something that you saw progressively happening before? That's the thing I wanted to just clarify. I think you touched on that it might have been, but yeah, I would say probably five or six years before um, all of this, and then it just kind of, you know, kept kept snowballing. Um, we were hiring journalists right out of college, rather than, you know, letting them sort of work their way up, you know. And, and I also think that that's because salaries went down because ad revenue went down for for media uh, stations. So I think all of that was hand in hand. But no, this certainly wasn't just a you know, after George Floyd, it had been COVID was a huge uh, eye opener for me as well. Uh, not so much what we were telling the public, but what we were not. And we were, again, privy to information through people who were calling us about certain issues that we just didn't seem like we, we cared um, to reflect a, a certain side of the story. One of the things that was revealed uh, by Dr. Fauci when he was talking about his decision making around, you know, changing his, the, his, the guidance he was offering around masks. Right, initially he said you, know, you shouldn't wear them. They said you should. He said he basically said that you know we did it because we wanted to make sure that people didn't uh, you know there wasn't a run on masks so this thing. But what this kind of exposed was this idea of as the leaders of the country or as the policy setters, we don't tell people the truth. We tell the people the thing that will elicit the correct behavioral response, the behavioral response we want i.e. We, we, we take the agency, right, so to speak, for ourselves as the leaders, and then we lay out something else. And I, I'm just wondering, is that something that you have thought about? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you saw these mantras being created in, in the wake of, of George Floyd, uh, whether that be, you know, Bl Black Lives Matter, obviously. Uh, you have that we'd be living on the right side of history. That was something that was repeated over and over again. But all of these, you know, spe specific things when it comes to, to language and how they were sort of selling this to, to the public, that was very uh, evident. That policing is race racist. It's rooted in racism. Uh, we heard that again and again. Don't, doesn't matter that uh, George Floyd was arrested by a black cop, but if so, if you go back and, and see some of these things they were selling early on, I think that's very evident in, in the film, exactly to what you're speaking to. Well, there's there's a number of people you show in the film who actively talk about and then double down on saying we our intention is to dismantle the police right. completely. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it. Right, and I, one, one particular councilwoman, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but I remember her doing interviews about this topic and explaining that it would be replaced by social workers and, and so forth, which is, you know, kind of nobody in the, in the communities that require the most policings actually want because they can imagine what it would look like, right? Well, in, in Minneapolis, you have, um, a, I mean, it's always been a, 
a very blue city, uh, controlled by Democrats for, for decades. Um, but they have moved into um, electing just outright socialists for their city council. Um, part of that is dismantling the police department. They really believe that. The, the woman you're speaking to, uh, she uh, decided not to run uh, for city council a after that, but certainly did did damage. I mean, you had, she was doubling down on dismantling the police department, which I would say, you know, they, they ultimately did. And she moved out of town. She sold her house in, in Minneapolis and left and lives <laughs> lives in another city in, in, in Minnesota now. But we saw that with many uh, of, you know, the, these leaders pushing this uh, on the public and they're all paying for the consequences. And, and many of them have, have moved out of Minneapolis at this point. This became the perfect place uh, for this to happen. Uh, you had the perfect people and the perfect positions uh, for this to play out, whether it be the Attorney General of Minnesota, you know, the, the governor, the mayor of Minneapolis, also an outsider who was sort of hand-plucked to uh, come to Minneapolis in, in the first place. But Minnesotans really are a, a very good and honest people, and I knew that I wasn't crazy, uh, you know, um, to, to believe you know that this you know simply didn't didn't have to uh, happen the way the way it did. Uh, any final thoughts as we finish? No, I guess I would challenge people uh, to share the the film with the, as many people as possible. I, I say that you know millions of people have have watched it already. Not one uh, mainstream station has yet to reach out for an interview. <laughs> but that is sort of the, the state of affairs we are in in at in, in the media, which is sad to me. Um, that it that it's come to this, uh, but don't be afraid to engage in these conversations. You know, especially when the facts are on your side, we have to be able to talk about this. And and I hope this does uh, change some some hearts and minds. And uh, but again, decide decide for yourself after you're able to to see things that that you haven't uh, seen before. Well, Liz Collin, such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for joining Liz Collin and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. <music>